Thank you, Jesus. And here we stand. In your holy presence.
something that I've touched on several different times and uh, never really been able to, probably for years, it's, I have I have studied it, I have um, looked into it, I've prayed about it, I've gathered information, and um, whether I'm saying this is necessarily something that God put on my heart or whether it's just been a very interesting thing for me, I'm not going to say one way or the other. Sometimes something that can be very interesting to you, uh, that's the way that God puts things on your heart. And uh, I'm just going to talk about relevancy in an irrelevant world. And uh, I, I'm trying to, um, I don't want this to be boring to you, but on the other side of it, this is just something that I just really feel that I, I want to touch on. And I know that there is no way that I'm going to be able to do it justice tonight. Uh, you know, it's something that I, I, when I'm done, it, it may just simply add questions. I've always been a strong believer when it comes to teaching uh, that if we can question ourselves and what we are doing or how we are doing it, then I think teaching is successful. Sometimes making or bringing a question mark in our minds concerning ourselves or concerning uh, how we are living for God or how we are affecting the kingdom of God is some of the best things that we can possibly do. There's always room for improvement, and I'll be the first one to say that uh, regardless, uh, I, I made a statement uh, this evening to somebody, I forgot who it was, <laughs> that sometimes that, that, that wisdom comes with age and if we can if we can just get to the point of where we could ever get enough wisdom at a young enough age maybe we could get more done because the time you by the time you are wise enough to do it you're too tired and um, so so maybe we can impart a little wisdom and maybe some younger people can check some things out and do a little bit better. You can go ahead and be seated. I'm going to come back and do some scriptures. There'll be some scriptures that'll come up and some things I'm going to be asking you. You got that second sheet, didn't you? Okay, I'll be having you bring that up. Um, and I just, again, maybe the title of this is not necessarily something that uh, fits as well as, as it should, but, you know, you've got to put a title on it. And so it's just like... Uh, I message I preached not too long ago said a weekend in September. It's the only thing I could come up with, so I just threw it on there, and then we preached about it. So uh, it works. As long as it works, it's okay. <laughs> Christianity has always existed, sadly sometimes, um, defined in and by local cultures. Now, I'm going to come back. I'm going to say this statement at the at the onset of this. And I'll probably come back and say it again. I am a strong believer in the culture of the church. I believe the church is a culture. But also, we have to be able to deal in cultures. Uh, probably the first time that I really had this begin to work on me was, uh, and I can't remember how long ago it was, but some years, I talked to... I, I either was uh, I, I talked to a missionary or a uh, missionary. I got it through another missionary, something something of this nature. But uh, they were trying to get clothing sent to Africa for the for the church there. Now, the scripture tell, tells us about 
the wearing of men's apparel, women's apparel, and modest dress. And that should be a norm. Because as I get into this, you'll understand more about what I'm saying. But in this case, all of us were sending, or not us, but all of the churches were sending uh, clothes that were Americanized. They were American coats and ties. And they just probably didn't work real well in the climate that they were living in. But that's the case. Now you go to the Philippines and all the preachers are wearing suits, coats, and ties and the American preachers are wearing barongs. Barong being the dress of the Philippines. That's what they wear. And, uh, you know, the dress shirts and that's what they do. But they all are Americanized. And so what I'm saying is this. Sometimes, and again I'm coming back. Well, I'm just trying to give you a, a little heads up on this. Sometimes we try to bring people into what we consider our culture when it's not scripturally relevant. We try to make them over in our image instead of God's image because of culture. Okay? Now, so a lot of times, you know, we see Christianity defined by local cultures, which is as wrong as, you know, defining uh, us sometimes, Americans, defining uh, other cultures by what we consider the norm. And kind of like the waves of the of the ocean, cultures have a have constantly rubbed against Christianity. Now the the pressing issue for Christian is how to live out our faith in our particular social, political, economic, and technological environment. Now that's that's the issue here. Now these questions lead to the challenge of devising ministry methods that are effective in our particular culture. Ministry should occur in the following sequence. Now, I, she's going to bring this up in sequence, and I want you to see this, because this is how we as Christians should be able to, to deal in our culture, how we reach out to our world. All right, if you would, put the first one up. Our theology should always be affirmed. Regardless of how we're doing something, we should always affirm our theology, what we believe. It should always be. If I'm going out and I'm winning souls, or if I'm going out and, and uh, doing anything, if it's a, whatever it may be to touch our community, our theology should always be affirmed. Second one. We apply our theology within our particular culture, resulting in ministry methods. Now notice, we apply what we believe within our particular culture resulting in methods. I always take what I believe and try to apply it to the culture and that results in a method of reaching our culture. Number three, these methods produce outcomes consistent with our theology. So the method I use should have a, an outcome. And it should be consistent with what we believe. Now, if you've picked up on this, this doesn't mean, again, I'm coming back. I'm giving you a synopsis, a synopsis here of everything, and then I'm going to come back and just a little bit more. We should never, ever change our theology in order to gain an outcome. Now, we are not the first Christians to wrestle with the culture issue. Acts 
the six chapters, the first time you see this happen. Verses 1 and 2, it's coming up right here. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. I think there's another one. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Okay, so there was a cultural problem there. The Hebrews were getting, uh, the, the Grecians' widows wanted to be taken care of, and the Hebrews were being taken care of, or like the Hebrew widows that were being taken care of. And the problem resulted, they didn't know how to deal with them in their culture, so they just neglected them. And so there was a problem. Actually, it was the first problem that occurs in the church was this one. And so what they did was they got 12 people to come in here and to take care of this problem. Now, I guarantee you one thing. The deacons that were appointed that day had to figure out exactly what to do to work in the Grecian culture. They had to. Now, if we go on with this, culture stood in the way of the gospel being preached in Acts 10 because they were Gentiles. The first church council was to resolve the issue of how to make disciples in a foreign culture. Paul had Timothy circumcised but didn't, uh, didn't have Titus, both for cultural reasons. So you see that culture has affected the church. That's just a few. There's several more of them that you see how culture has always involved uh, or involved the church somehow or the church has had to be involved in culture somehow. Now, now we we draw also. You know, this is this is something that, that that's. I'm, I'm afraid to say it, but I'm going to have to because I'm right. Okay, and, and that is we draw on the Old Testament for principles about how to live. And it's right. That, you know, biblically, if you go into the New Testament, that's how we know for men and women not wearing the same apparel. That's how we know. We go back, but we come into First Peter, the third chapter, and we see how the results there, that, that they, they were told that to, go, to go back and to see how uh, Sarah treated Abraham and how the, you see the results here of, of, of uh, if you want an answer, you have to go back to the Old Testament in this issue to find that answer. But on the other side of the coin, you see that in Israel, Israel had, had a completely different setup than the church has. Israel was a religious nation. And they didn't have to deal. I mean, Israel had, uh, they had religion, they had a penal code, they had social mores, and all of these blended together. This way, all defined, in, in, and this was all defined, rather, in the law of Moses. Everything about Israel was defined in the law of Moses. They had to do it that way. But in Christianity, we go back, we're told in the New Testament to go back to the Old Testament and see how to live, but yet we don't have the backing of the law of Moses and the penalty. You know, we're dealing with governments now that could come against the state, the church, we have to deal with that. In the Old Testament, all they had to deal with was backslidden kings and prophets. So it's a different world. Now, you can see what I'm talking about in this in Matthew 22, 17, 21. There's others. I'm just going to read the one here. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny and saith unto him, Whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. So he's telling them, You have to deal with the government the way the government has told you to deal with them. Be honest with them. 
And so sometimes that rubs us wrong in how we have to do this. John 18, 36 tells it, Romans 13. Now, as a covenant people that, that spans all nations, languages, and cultures, Christians have always faced issues with secular culture. It's easy to fall into the trap of, of a knee-jerk reaction to new cultural concerns, but, but, but seeing that cultures includes so much more than music styles, clothing preferences, and technological trends, you know, it's necessary that Christians develop a working philosophy and a theology of culture. We have to understand what it takes to reach, but it's a whole lot different than when I was a child, I was a teenager in the late 60s and early 70s, crazy age. People were coming out of, the, uh, of, of just normal Christianity, you know, just normal values and morals. And, you know, they begin a whole, you have a whole group that came and said that's not necessary. Now that group have had kids and that group of kids don't have a clue about what's right and wrong. And that's what we're dealing with. You know, obviously you've heard me say it before. You know, now it's a matter of you get someone delivered from cocaine or heroin, it's okay to go ahead and smoke marijuana. It's not, but in their mind, it is. I got off the bad stuff. So you have to deal completely. It's a completely different in how you work with people anymore. You know, the church can and should use what is available from culture in order to proclaim the gospel. And I think that's okay. The church can consecrate secular inventions and creativity and use them for the sake of the gospel. You know, this is in line with the New Testament references on, on the matter. The New Testament presents Christianity as a life to be lived in the world. We're not to indulge in sinful activity, neither can we cloister ourselves away as if they did not we don't live in the world. Otherwise, it would be impossible to live out the Christian principle of love and witness. John 17, 11. I want you to bring that up, if you would. John 17. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. I'm no more, but I'm dealing with people that are in the world. I'm dealing with them. And it's different. Go to the next one, if you would. I think it's Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. I wrote into you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Now look at this. I'm, I'm, a lot of people don't quite get this. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with the idolaters. For then must she needs go out of the world. He's saying now, this whole thing is a warning. Don't keep company with fornicators yet. Don't cloister yourselves. Don't get away from everything. Don't be afraid of it either. Now, what's he saying here? He is telling them, you're going to deal with fornicators. You're going to deal with extortioners. You're going to deal with idolaters. Don't get to be buddy-buddy with them. But don't be afraid of them because they need to be taught. They need, to be, they need, to, they need what you have. So it's a, it, it, the way Paul is telling the Corinthian church, the Corinthian church was a mess anyway, but the way that he was talking to the Corinthian church, all right, don't be buddy-buddy with them. Don't go out and be partakers of what they're partakers. That's what he's saying. I'm not telling you to get away from them. I'm telling you not to be doing what they're doing. So, you know, there again is the culture. I don't want you out of the world, but I don't want you to be a participator in the world either. You know, we're not to indulge in this sinful activity, activity but we can't, we can't cloister ourselves. We can't, you know, I, 
get away on a mountain somewhere and, and try to live away from all this. It just doesn't work. So then how do we, uh, uh, let, me, let me, before I come to this next point, I got some things here. I thought was interesting. These are quotations on culture. This first one's from 1913. It says, Modern culture is a mighty force. It is either subservient to the gospel or else it is the deadliest enemy of the gospel. For making it subservient, religious emotion is not enough. Intellectual labor is also necessary, and that labor is being neglected. The church has turned to easier tasks, and now she is reaping the fruits of her indolence. Now she must battle for her life. That was written in 1913. He's saying the church is, is not only, it's not all just emotions. There's intellect that's involved as well. Now, before you get over there and you, you judge me harshly, I believe the leading of the Spirit. I believe in prayer, and I believe prayer changes things. But I also know that we have to use some wisdom when we deal in certain areas. God may open the door, but it's still up to us to go through the door. It's still up to us. God may give you words to say, but to be sure those words are from God and not from your own mind. Okay? Now, this next uh, quotation is from the second century. And it's from the, called the Epistle of Dionysus. They live in their own countries, but only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else, have children, but they do not expose their offspring. They share their food, but not their wives. They're in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws... Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. Second century. Now, this is a modern one, just recently said. It actually comes from a book called Got to Be Good Looking Because He's So Hard to See. Pretty good, huh? Debates with Christians who embrace pop culture are frequently hamstrung by the tenacity that which they insist on discussing the audible sound only and never the actual meaning of the word. Modern evangelicals have a clear eye this way. They have a true imitative genius. They can copy anything the world produces down to the slightest flourish or embellishment. Whether trafficking in guitar licks or designer logos, they can always ape the real thing with exactitude. The only thing they don't know is what it all means. Now you listen to this. Modern evangelicals are like a drunk Japanese businessman in a karaoke bar singing along with the stones. In his own boozy way, he knows everything about the song except what it's about. Now, that is the best quote that would really tell you what the church is all about today. Now, I'm serious. And I'm not, I'm denominations and Pentecostals as well. I see so much imitation out there. Always trying to imitate. No one coming up and trying to imitate the real. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's, let's take it. How, how do we do it? How do, how do, we, how do we operate? How do we, how do we get into the culture and not be like a drunken karaoke Japanese guy? Huh? You know, before we can appropriate any particular aspect or benefit of culture, we need to know what we hope to accomplish by doing it. We should not use technology or the arts, for example, simply because they exist. 
You don't use something just because it's there. What value is it? It's, uh, you know, I love this PowerPoint. It took me a while to get to it, but I had to know it was relevant. You know, I had the PowerPoint, now you got all the Sunday school classes on PowerPoint, but the thing is, they just want it because it's a PowerPoint. I'm not sure how much they're even using it. Okay? And, and that's why I'm so hard to get along with when it comes to getting something. Do you want to prove to me that we need it? It's like these Congos over here. Everybody wanted the Congos. Nobody's playing the Congos. Okay? So that, that's upsetting because to me that's a waste. Now, I've got Louie back there that's going to be playing the Congos after the first year because I've been, I've been after Louie. That's it. Keep that hand up. Uh, he's from Puerto Rico, so I know he can play Congos in there, right? Isn't that a part of being a Puerto Rican? <laughs> So, you know, I, I, but I'm saying that, that everybody, they, they go and they look at something somebody else has. And they want to ape it. You know, I want to be just like that. Regardless of the fact that, you know, the person playing the Congos in the church down the road has been playing the Congos for 20 years. And they're faithful and they're always going to be there. And now here you decide you want to play the Congos. I'm just using this, okay? And, and you don't realize that it hurts your hands. Does it hurt your hands to play the Congos? Don't you have to? You have to build some, some, you know, some callus up there. And so you know, after the first week, well, it hurts my hands. They don't realize that there takes some dedication with anything. Somebody has got to operate it. It's not good enough just to have it here and looking good. I mean, we ain't got a microphone on. There's nobody plays them. I threatened to, but Brother Davis, he said he would hit me with his drumsticks if I ever did. But, you know, it, it's, it's not, it, it's, you've you got to look at it, 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 do we need this? Is this something that we really is, or just to the, for the sake of having it? You know, it should be a tool for a purpose. You know, our theology demands that the proclamation of the Word, worship, and the moving of God's Spirit are the only things to be showcased in churches. If the drums doesn't help for the move of the Spirit, then we don't need them. If the singing doesn't help for the move of the Spirit and worship, then we don't need it. You understand what I'm saying? You can take a church with just a little of nothing and have a move of the Spirit, and it's more relevant than somebody that's got or a group that's got everything they want, but yet it's all for the showcase purpose. Are you understanding? Look what we are. Look what, what we've become. The showcase doesn't cut unless it's for word and worship, are you hearing me? Unless it's for the moving of God's Spirit, then it has absolutely no value. Now, accordingly, appropriating aspects of culture must always be in the service of some higher theological purpose. Theology always takes priority over culture. Theology that is overrun by meaningless cultural clutter prostitutes the gospel. Now, if you didn't understand what that meant, I'll say it is selling the gospel for the wrong reason. Prostituting the gospel. Now, and normally it's for some other ends and usually results as, a, as nothing more than a measure of, or a head count. I got a lot of musical instruments, a lot of people playing a lot of good music, and I got a lot of people coming to hear the music, but how many people are being saved? 
So that's called prostitution of the gospel. How many people are being moved? How many lives are being changed? And I'm not in this just so we can have a head count. I'm in this to see people saved. I'm in this to see people receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, baptized in Jesus' name. That's why we're in this. Not just a matter of, of prostituting or having a head count. You know, Pentecostal theology holds to a restorationist uh, teaching, if you would. And this means that the New Testament is our sole authority for doctrine and the apostles' interpretation of the Old Testament as well as the words of Jesus Christ are our pattern. The apostles' theology and practice are our model. And additionally, we must distinguish between cultural preferences and doctrinal imperatives. We cannot make cultural expressions into theological positions. I know this said this before, but somehow that thing still creeps back in. And it would be easy. I'd be the first one in the world to do this if I didn't fight it every day of my life. There's things I don't like that has nothing to do in the Scripture, but I just don't like them. I don't see any damage in the future that they could do, but I don't like them. I don't see how anybody could ever be hurt by it, but I don't like them. Why don't you like them? It's because I was dropped on my head when I was a baby. Do you understand that? I think, and you've heard, I think toeless shoes on women is an abomination. You got that? You got that? And my wife wears them all the time. You know why? Because I don't like them. Do you think it has anything to do with making it to heaven? No, I don't think it has anything to do with making it to heaven. But I don't like them. But you know what it could do? If I was a knucklehead, I'd get up here and preach against them, couldn't I? And you know what that would mean? That means that I would be going to hell because I'm preaching against total shoes. As absolutely, it's a cultural thing. I was raised where women wore cowboy boots, you know. And, and <laughs> But you would be surprised through the years and even today how many things are preached from a pulpit that has absolutely nothing to do with the Bible. Nothing. And so we have to be to be relevant. We cannot bring in culture expression and say that kind of dream up some kind of scripture. I've seen I've seen I've seen guys bring in well, boy, I could really get into it here, but I better not. Why not? I make everybody mad. I'm pre- I'm trying to work on getting back at that, you know. Everybody mad. <laughs> okay. I don't got the right shoulder, didn't I? Okay, got the right shoulder. Got to be careful with this. I brought this up before, but I'm bring it up again because there's still some of you out there that have a hard time with it. You know, he's a Russian, and he should never have married a good Indiana girl. Isn't that right? I mean, it's culturally different, right? I mean, she has a hard... Well, Lord, she wouldn't have a hard time. And if it's really missed, she is white, isn't she? Okay, okay. Oh, did you hear that? She's white, it's okay. Did you get that? Huh? Huh? Did you get that? Now, if Louie wanted to marry a white girl, you'd have no trouble with that. 
But now, what if James wanted to marry a white girl? Oh, now, 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 come on now. I'm going to be relevant today. What about it? Well, now, if something happens to my wife, I might want to marry Joni. Oh, I can't do that. Well, it's big of me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you know, biblically, I have seen men go from one end of the Bible and come up with one scripture after the other that had absolutely nothing to do with it. You've heard it too, haven't you? I have heard everything you can imagine. Now, some of you are squirming right now, but you can't find it in the Bible. Now, if we're going to say anything, don't you go quoting Scripture. If you don't believe in it, that's up to you and God. But don't you quote any Scripture to me that's not relevant. I just, I, I just wonder how much that we stifle ourselves by adding to the Word of God. The Bible says not to add to it. Now, I, you know, again, I know that there are cultural things that do come out. I realize sometimes it's difficult. You know, and Joni would probably say the same thing. That sometimes it, it would be, you know, being married to a white guy, probably the worst thing that ever happened to her. But on the other side of it, you know, there are, there's attitudes that can be changed. There's cultures that can be gone over. And if you are both in the culture of the church, do you understand what I'm saying? It shouldn't be a problem. But some of us old folks were brought up. Isn't that right? Got any scripture for it? Well, give me a scripture. Oh, okay. See, he can't quote it, so it's no good. <laughs> See, he was raised that way. Yeah. And I do. I, I, I realize that the... the the hard part of coming out of a traditional way of thinking. I'm not being obnoxious with this. On the other side of it, I'm saying that you need to look at the Scripture in the context of the Scripture and find out because you can't... If you go pulling Scripture out of there to prove a point, that is absolutely no different than some denomination pulling the Scripture out and trying to prove what they need for doctrine to make it to heaven. All right, now I've, I've got your attention now. Are we ready to go on? All right. Now, what? Let, let, let's 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 put it, what what we need to do is allow our theology to critique our culture. Do you understand what I just said? We need our theology to be what defines our culture, not culture defining theology. Because what I just when I just made that statement, what is the what is the difference here of someone of darker skin marrying someone of lighter skin when the Bible have, absolutely says nothing about it? In fact, I can show you two places in the Scripture where it, it, that they, there was. I think it was Moses that married Keturah. Yeah, all in one blood. Seventeenth chapter, book of Acts. You know, it, it's, it, is, it, is, it shows you there. But I'm saying that that is where that we have to allow our theology to critique our culture. Because it sometimes it hurts 
to have something come against us. And I'm talking to some of you new converts as well. You know, you're going to hear some things taught maybe in the future that's going to, it's going to hit you. And you think, I'm just not sure even though I can show you in the Scripture where it, it's, it's there. So our, the Scripture should be that which critiques our theology, should critique our culture or the way that we were raised, if you want to use that term. You know, you're raised a certain way and you've had that pounded into your head all your life and all of a sudden someone comes up and shows you something in the Bible and it goes completely against everything that you have been taught. Does that make mom and dad wrong? Does that make grandma and grandpa wrong? I'm not making anybody wrong. I'm just showing you what this says. You let God be the judge of the rest of it. You have an obligation when you see it in here you have an obligation to abide by it. Now, additionally, yeah, let me let me let me, let me jump because I'm gonna. Oh my goodness, I'm just getting started. Relevance is not a bad word. Jesus and Paul both were culturally relevant. Jesus used cultural references in teaching, and most notably in his parables, as, as he used a lot of them. Two of, of the Lord's most in, impacting lessons, the Good Samaritan and the foot-washing narrative, are deeply, deeply situated in the Jewish culture of the first century. Paul used aspects of culture on numerous occasions. His use of rhetoric, his appeal to the unknown God and Marcel. That's what I always loved about Paul. Paul would go back to the poets. Paul would go to the Mars Hill. Now, when he went up to the, the men of the, uh, on Mars Hill, they had a, a statue of the unknown God. He did not come against that statue of the unknown God. He said, in most things, you're too superstitious. He didn't tell them, tear that thing down, you're going to hell. He did not. He said, I know who that unknown God is. Do you understand what I'm saying? Look at the way he addressed it. He did not tear down their culture. He just simply said, this is who that unknown God is. He led people. He didn't push people. Now, let me just read to you 1 Corinthians 9.22. And he says, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law is under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law is without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ. That I may gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men, that I might be all by all means saved some. In his book, Heaven Below, Early Pentecostals in American Culture, Harvard University Press 2001, Grant Wacker attributes the success of early Pentecostals to a balance of, and I want you to follow me here, to a balance of primitivism, which means looking backward to the apostles and relying on the Spirit, and pragmatism conforming to practical needs of local uh, context. Now, he says this, and I'm quoting, uh, it says, in this book, he said, I describe... And this longing for direct contact with the divine in a number of ways. Most often, however, I call it primitivism. Before long, it became clear that Pentecostals, through prim primitivists, were never purely so. For all of their declarations about living solely in the realm of the supernatural with the Holy Spirit guiding every step of their lives, they nonetheless displayed a remarkably clear-eyed vision of the way things work here on earth. The one term that seems best to capture all of these meanings, and that's the one I use most often, is pragmatism. Uh, 
This word suggests that at the end of the day, Pentecostals proved remarkably willing to work within the social and cultural expectations of the age. Again and again, we see them holding their proverbial finger to the wind, calculating where they were, where they wanted to go, and above all, how to get there. The last instinct, the ability to figure the odds and react appropriately, made them pragmatist to the bone. To use Wacker's terms, balancing the primitive and the pragmatic is a challenge, but is a key in building effective churches. It's being able to put your finger in the wind, find out where the wind's coming from, and being able to follow it. Everything changes. You can't do things the same way all the time. We know the Word saves people, but you've got to get the Word into people. And you've got to get the people to hear the Word. So it's, it's important. Now, going on, uh, although we want to preserve a, a godly society, we must keep in mind that the kingdom of God is not the same as the kingdom of men. All right, that's, that's another thing. I brought this out before. I put a lot of things together into tonight. America is not the kingdom of God. Okay? America is not the kingdom of God. Just so you're, because you're born an American doesn't mean that you're going to go to heaven. Just because you, weren't, you were born in ungodly Russia, I'll immediately put you in the bad place. <laughs> I love him. <laughs> He take him and Rob takes a lot of guff now. <laughs> you better get them scriptures. We're going to have a debate on that. You got your scriptures, all right? I didn't, no, I want to debate you. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I want to hear all those scriptures you got. Okay. So America is not the kingdom of God. And while we want to, to strive from within our national identity for desired social and political outcomes, we must always see ourselves as outsiders, pilgrims in this world. We can never see ourselves as being a part of this world. Though we live in it, we're not a part of it. It might be helpful if North American ministers could view North America in the same way that foreign missionary views a foreign country. We need to be prepared to abandon our own cultural preferences. Going back to some of the things I was saying earlier, we have to abandon some of those cultural preferences in order to be able to reach. And that is hard because a lot of those cultural preferences is such a part of your life. It's difficult. You know, and in order to reach the lost, there's a lot of things we need to to get rid of that's just simply a cultural preference. And likewise, we should be willing to adopt various methodologies that are culturally relevant to the audiences we're trying to reach. A missionary to Tasmania would ask, how do I reach the people in their culture? He would not make Tasmania adapt to his culture. We too should step back and look at North America and ask, how do we reach these people? This includes respecting cultural and methodological diversity that we may not personally like. But just some things we may not personally like. Again, this is much easier said than done. You know, some of you that just do not like the way things get done and the way we reach people and the way that we do things, you know, you just need to step back and look. If I, am I somehow breaking the Scripture? Are we somehow going against it? Are we going against the Word of God? When the Bible says, go out on the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be full, you know, are we somehow doing something wrong? Or is it just the fact that it might make you lose sleep? Yes? Who is it? I say, is that my friend, Mr. Magoo? (laughs) 
I say, sir, why would you do such teaching as this? You know that in jolly old England, you, the colonists, don't know, have a clue what's going on. We, in Great Britain, know all. And yet we broke away from it, right? Because you did know all. And a lot of America can be just, you know, we're a bunch of rebels. We came out of all, that's all we are. And yet we're getting just like the people we broke away from. Ooh. You know, we really broke away from the assemblies of God. You know that? We didn't believe in that Trinitarian formulae. We didn't believe in, you know, that when we first broke away from them, they had holiness down. They even spoke in tongues, but they did not baptize right. So we broke away from them. We baptize right in Jesus' name. We don't hang on to that Catholic formula. But yet now here in the Scripture, we're seeing some things that we grabbed onto culturally, just like some of the denominations held on to the culture of Catholicism. That makes us really feel bad. We don't like to talk that way because that really hurts our feelings, doesn't it? Why not? Why not be honest with ourselves? Every time I get honest with myself, I hurt my own feelings. You know, leading a church sometimes in the 21st century is really hard. You can preach repentance, water, baptism in Jesus' name, infilling the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, evidence by speaking. You see, that's a cultural thing with me. I had the hardest time saying Holy Spirit. I mean, I know the Bible says Holy Ghost most of the time, but it means the same. But because I somehow get this charismatic vibe every time I say Holy Spirit, I just, I look at it and I just, you know, like that, start stammering lips. You know, when you do all that, though, when you begin to preach the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, evidenced by speaking with other tongues, you're naturally going to run into opposition. When we call people to a life of holiness, someone's not going to follow. These challenges often stretch ministers to the extent of their leadership abilities. This is why you see what you see. And I'm, I'm going to just kind of explain something to you. When a man of God is extended to the edge of his leadership abilities then the only thing he's looking to, he's not looking to theology anymore. He's looking to outcome. So he drops his theology. He puts his methods and his outcome. That's all he uses. He drops his theology. Then he can fill up a church building. And so he's happy because it becomes a numbers game. And he does that because he's reached the end. You know, a few, a few years ago, in the United Pentecostal Church, uh, several years ago, you know, we, we hit a, well, I guess it's not several, a few years ago. We hit that wherever churches, you know, we're having all the seminars about soul winning and everybody's soul winning and everybody's doing great. And, and all the churches started comparing themselves. And you got churches in the big cities that were filling up churches and running a thousand people. And, and all that the men saw was that thousand people. They didn't realize that most of these churches were in, in cities that run millions. And they, they were in a town that run 500. And so they were running 100 or 200 people, which was great in comparison. In comparison-wise, they were actually a bigger church than what the church running 1,000 was in the big city. But they didn't see that. 
They just saw that this group was running a bigger church. So what do they do? Well, I've done everything I can do, so the next thing to do is I drop theology out of the equation so I can run more. And they did this simply because they run to the edge of their leadership abilities. They could not do it with theology involved because they could no longer explain it, teach it, whatever it was that they needed to do. They ran to the end of their theology. And so they, they dropped theology and they just in order to get numbers. That happened. And a lot of churches was lost as a, as a result of that. And it's still happening to some degree. You know, we did everything. Instead of, I've said this before, instead of looking at the Scripture and just staying with what was always right, worship is always right, prayer is always right, word is always right, giving is always right. You know, you stay with it, but instead we seem to highlight one or the other. And we can't, when people have a tendency, when one thing is highlighted, they can't do anything but that one thing. And so the balance was off. Without the balance, there was failure. And so the, you know, men begin to drop it. And although, although hardly anyone would admit to doing this, when we elevate outcomes as our primary concern, we open ourselves up to abandoning any kind of meaningful emphasis on theology. So if our outcomes are defined primarily by attendance or growth, when it becomes easy to make both methods and theology subservient to our outcomes, that's what happens. Okay, theology is okay as long as I've got an outcome. But if my outcome is not good, then I'm going to drop it. Then you no longer have a church. You have a group. And that's all you have. And this is precisely what happens to some when they run up against the limits of their leadership abilities. Instead of pushing through their personal limitation in order to lead people further. And I, I, let, me, let me take this one step further. And I'll take it to all leaders. I'm talking to leaders as well as I, myself, anybody that's a preacher. When you, preach, when you push up against your leadership uh, abilities, when you come to the end of them, the best thing in the world to do is go on a fast. Now, isn't that a bad answer? You wanted me to say something that was really sharp. The best thing to do is fast till your britches fall off. And if you're a girl, we won't talk, you know, you know what I'm saying is fast until you come to the... I, I, I've, I know, and that's a biblical answer, and that is the truth. Fasting and prayer, but sometimes it's just a matter of getting a hold of yourself to extend your leadership abilities. And the best way to get a hold of yourself is to fast. That is the best way. If you want, to, you want answers to your questions, fast. Fast. And, and I, I, I see, and instead of just throwing everything in, you know, you, you, you find what you need for yourself in order to extend your abilities. Now, under the guise of being blessed or just loving people, some have changed their methods to generate more outcomes, people in attendance. And although we all want more in attendance, we should devise methods according when these changes lead to fewer people, receiving the Holy Spirit, being baptized in Jesus' name, and living a godly life that is distinguishable from the world. The outcomes have superseded our theology. Now, you see, that, that is the whole thing. We have got to, when, when we don't have people living right, then there's something wrong with what we're doing. Now, just a second, and kind of finishing up here. There is nothing more ineffective than a person grasping at the latest cultural trappings in an attempt to be relevant. 
That's kind of like, and you know, what would you think? And you, you know, it's a big jolly joke. But what would you think if I came up here with one of them sequin suits on? No, really. White one. Goatee. Don't shake your head, Bob. It'll never happen. Don't worry about it. It'll never happen. But I want to be relevant. What's that? Oh, men's clothes. No. Yeah. Now, come on. You know what? Just remember. My daddy told me one time, I brought you into this world, I can take you out. <laughs> you know, you know, but what if I did that? You know, I'm trying to, to fit in. I'm trying to, to bring people into the church, so I've got to get one of those sequin suits. Pink shirt. What else? You know, what, what, what other things that you see on these TV evangelist stuff? I would never watch that junk, but some of you people are not saved yet. You know? You know, but, but we, you see it happen. They, all the time, somehow they think that's got to be relevant. This is one of the most interesting things I ever read, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna read to it, read it for you just to kind of give you an idea. Now, first off, uh, this, this uh, minister is from the Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. Now, I, we don't agree with their doctrine whatsoever, but I, 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 I like this guy. And his name is Tim Keller, and he's a senior pastor at this particular church in Manhattan. It meets in three locations with a combined Sunday attendance of 5,000 people. And I said, although Tim Keller is not apostolic and we, and we don't agree with his doctrine, he's doing what every denomination as well as the emergent church leaders want to do. He's reaching college students, young single professionals, and an urban center. Now, you would think that Tim Keller is a rebel in his 30s who wears ripped-up jeans and bashes institutional Christianity. That's what you would think first. But that's wrong. A guy who wrote about him said this. He described his experience at Redeemer as follows. He said, standing 6'4", with a bald head, glasses, and a coat and tie, Keller, 58, does not look hip. Nor is his sermon funny, charming, or daring. He preaches from the first chapter of Genesis on the doctrine of creation. Redeemer's worship is seemly and traditional. Instead of using video monitors, casually dressed worshipers follow a 20-page, now listen to this, bulletin that includes hymns, prayers, and Bible text. Organ and brass quartet lead the music for evening services. Jazz musicians play contemporary Christian songs. Now why is this man, Tim Keller, Let's ask this question. Effective in a mainline denomination while a majority of mainline churches are declining. Why? Why is he able to do this? His effectiveness is not a result of him trying to be cool or using the latest methods. He is effective because he is ministering in a way that's authentic to him. Now you think about what I'm saying. It's authentic for him. And for us to be authentic requires that we grant the liberty to our fellow ministers to be authentic. That's the reason I, I, and I do, I respect every preacher that's in this church. I respect his ministry. I respect, you've got to respect because we're all different. You can't be me. I can't be you. You've got to be authentic to yourself. You've got to be authentic. 
You know, we've got the right message. We have passion. But these two alone do not translate into a new church or new church plants or successful churches. We have, to, we have to build a bridge between our message and the world. And this bridge is a method. Uh, you know, and, and do our methods encourage people to experience a new birth? Or do they hinder people from experiencing a new birth? Could we be more effective with a different methods? Have we maximized our evangelistic capacity of, existing or of our existing methods? Do, do our methods hide the message from those who are seeking? And will we ever escape? Let me, my last point. Will we ever escape the question? Will we ever escape that question? That's why we have to be relevant. You know, folks, and I'll say this again. Be sure that you understand what the Scripture is teaching. Don't, don't get yourself so caught up in just... And, and, and when I say tradition, I know Brother, uh, Brother Hill preached on tradition. The Bible is not necessarily against tradition. It speaks for the tradition of the apostles. It's the tradition of men that it's against. And you see, somehow we'll take that word tradition... And we'll think that we're following the tradition of the apostles when in essence we're just following the traditions of men. And that is simply because not enough people look at what this thing is saying. And they take for granted. And again, I, you know, you've got to be completely honest with yourself as a minister that you are preaching the unadulterated Word of God and not some ideas. You know, I want to follow after the tradition of the apostles, not after just what Grandpa Jones said. Now, Grandpa Jones may not have been right. He may have been following after somebody else. You never know. You know, and sometimes we just want to do things our way, and we want to do it no matter what. And some, you got to get over that as well. You got to be honest with ourselves. Let's stand. Everybody say authentic. 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 Relative. Relative. Good. The theory of relativity. <laughs> oh, you know, sometimes we just, I don't know, maybe it's just, I, I have a tendency to, uh, you know, throughout throughout the years, you you'll see men men of God who have were always authentic, always stayed right on the on the word. And I I, I do I made a statement. I want to I want to qualify it again. There are times that a, a preacher will stand up, and he may not have chapter and verse for something he's coming against, but he sees in principle in the scripture what it could do. Some things are not necessarily wrong, but some things can lead you to something that is wrong. Now, when we had a school here, we used to have a six-inch rule on males and females. Anybody want to tell me why we would do that? Why is that? That's right. Limit distractions and limit other things. Isn't that right, Aaron? <laughs> he never listened. That's why he said he never listened. <laughs> You you had a a, a six-inch rule to keep down the too much touching male female, and there is a purpose in that. Too much touching causes problems. Problems can elevate. So a lot of times when it comes to 
to something a preacher may be preaching, something that he may see in the Holy Ghost. And the principle, if you're, if you're careful, study, there's a lot of principles in this. They're not necessarily just out. You know, thou shall not. Uh, but you do know that, you know, it does not say thou shall not smoke dope. But the term pharmaceutical is in there where it tells you not to be anything at pharmacia, actually. Uh, pharmacia, and it says anybody that participates in that will be thrown into the lake of fire. And that's abuse. And you know your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. It's another thing. It's First Corinthians, the third chapter. So you know you, you, you say, so you come against that. And there's reasons, you know, no matter what. Well, I don't understand why you have to preach that. Well, I preach it to keep you safe. There, you, there has to be standards. There has to be lines that you don't cross that keeps you safe. But there is a difference when you're just in it because you don't like it. Ergo, toeless shoes. I think I'll get up here and suddenly have a whole message on. Toeless shoes. Now, especially you. You know what the Bible says about redheads, don't you? <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. It doesn't say anything. So there you go. <laughs> Let's raise our hands to the Lord and thank you for his goodness. We thank you, Jesus, for your goodness, your blessings. I pray that you keep your hand on each and every one. Bless them, be with them in every way I ask God right now. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. I don't, that's my phone.